This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, among our most read stories on the Bloomberg Today, one on MMT, you know what we're talking about, modern monetary theory. Something Do fa- people know what we're talking about? Come on. <laughs> you better. If you've been listening on, to Bloomberg, major. if you've been listening or to Or reading us, the magazine. I was going to say, we've been talking about it a lot. Anyway, it's something Fed Chair Jay Powell kind of dismisses, and it's one that some on Wall Street say, perhaps, why not? Which brings us to our Liz Kaplan McCormick. She's our Bond and FX reporter at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Like I said, among the most read story. Take this one away because we were talking before we got going that you know go back a a couple of months or something and people would bring this up they're like oh that's just silly this makes no sense and now it's gaining some momentum remind everybody that what mmt is all about right so this modern monetary theory to kind of wind it into a little nutshell is basically that in a sense deficits don't matter if you are printing you know borrowing money in your own currency which obviously the u.s is right and you know as you guys have talked about in a more in-depth economic side it's a lot to do with well, if we focus on a level of employment that's good, then we can gauge the deficit. Um, but you have to look at the markets because, you know, to fund that deficit, the U.S. is selling lots and lots of debt. But, uh, you know, I went to these people, like you said, Carol, thinking everyone would say, you know, Peshaw, this is terrible, whatever. <laughs> and they all said... Well, yeah, Liz, I don't really believe in the theory, but you can't argue with look at Treasury yields at below 10 years at below 3% when we've had our deficits are worsening and we've had this, they call it, you know, this experiment with all these central banks printing money. We haven't seen inflation. So kind of like they're saying, we got to admit the politicians may have some room to run with this until they pay the price later. You well, know? And, and the politicians who are either explicitly or implicitly endorsing this None other than our local AOC. Uh, You know, this is an underpinning, potentially, of the Green New Deal, right? Right, right, which they say, well, this could fund it. You know, let's we'll fund it with the deficit, and that's not so bad, you know? And we have people saying, and you know, there's a battle going on. We won't use names of, you know, senior economists fighting each other on this. Um, But, yeah, that's what they're saying, you know? If if we follow this, you know, and— Kind of the Bernie Sanders view as well that right. you know we have some room to you know expand the deficit. Liz, what about the argument though that it, it, we're kind of in this unprecedented environment where you have all global or a lot of global central banks have been on this easy monetary you know policy? Does that make this different from when we had the bond vigilantes and the bond market saying, "Wait, folks, this is wrong. Maybe this is why we haven't had this reaction." Well, exactly. I think that's what um, some of the folks that I have in my story were saying. Like Marty Mitchell has been in the market since the. 80s. 80s and remembers those days yeah. that it's a different world now. And even uh, Michael Scholl was saying, you have to look. The, even though Powell said, we're not here to help you, in a sense, the central banks have helped this. Right. You know, this easy money has kind of greased the wheels right. that Treasury Secretary Mnuchin is able to sell debt and the, there's very good demand. We're not paying up. We're not kind of crowding out, as the theory would say, you know. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah. Well, and one of the things you point out in your story, which I think is really interesting, is that this trend since 2008 is coordinated monetary Mm -hmm. and fiscal policy, which is not an obvious thing to to many of us who don't follow it as closely as you do. Right. And and, but I I think the Fed would 
disagree and of say course. it's not happening, <laughs> yes, right? right? You know right. what I mean? But but it really kind of is. And of course, we needed to get out of the great financial crisis, the great depression, almost depression, recession. And, and we needed the Fed and the government to do everything. I don't think anyone's saying we shouldn't, but people are saying, did it need to go on for like a decade? You know, the Fed has just kind of gotten rates up a little bit, and already they're kind of, hey, saying we're going to be patient, you know? But so. it does make you wonder, why hasn't the market fought back? Why hasn't right. the market said, folks, we're uncomfortable with this. We're uncomfortable with this growing deficit, um, which is what we've seen in the past. It does make you say, well, why hasn't that happened? Well, I, I will tell you, I, I hear ringing in my ear Ed Yardeni, who's that's who I'm the thinking of, of uh, the bond vigilantes. Yeah. And he, he always says to me when we talk on this that a lot of it is it's about inflation, too. And and the, the bond vigilantes were a lot to do with deficits and inflation. And, and we're not seeing the inflation. The Fed is right. struggling to get that 2% and to keep it there. So, you know, that's helping. And, and that goes into a lot of other things, you know, low productivity, mm-hmm. the Amazon effect. There's so much, to your point, Jason, that it's like a whole new world. Right. It's kind of like a, a change paradigm, I think. You know? Well, and, and we should remember that the bond vigilantes really had an impact on policy with Bill Clinton, right? Exactly. I mean, they, they yeah. really yeah. turned him on, or turned his agenda, right. I, I should say. Well, remember Carville, his aide, who said, you know, if I come back in James my next Carville. life, yeah, I, I, I don't, you know, I want to be the bond market, <laughs> you know, that they have more power than anyone. Speaking you know? of the bond market, you have Bill Gross, uh, you note Bill Gross in your story. Yes. Just, is yeah. he someone who's yeah, saying, well, you know, you saw my, you know, Eric Shasker did a wonderful interview mm-hmm. with him, and uh, he and I spoke, and he did some stories, and I kind of, from Eric's story that I said, you know, Bill Gross sounds a little bit like he's kind of giving a nod that, you know, I kind of, the MMTers maybe not be so far off. And he gave a nod to Japan, what they're doing, uh, which is a lot of coordination. So it was interesting to see his comments to Eric. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I was saying that you were on with uh, the surveillance crew this morning, and it was a great conversation. Um, and But, you know, I guess you have to think about growing deficits against what else? Like, is your right. economy growing? Do you have inflation? Right, it's not just one thing on its own. Right, right. It's a whole, right. you know, pocket full of data points. Yeah, but it's your your deficit to your GDP, right? And uh, Ben Holland, who edited the story with me, was great. He made a kind of a cool chart for our story, but looking at our deficit to GDP is worse than Japan now. So that's where you start to say how long can this last right. and the cbo is projecting the deficit on its current course with everything we're doing that's without any new policies is going to be topping a trillion in a couple of years so but i do wonder about like in the government like if you spend on programs that ultimately create yeah. growth and productivity does it somehow i don't know well, does it work that, that would be their argument right, right? and yeah. I, I don't know maybe we'll all be schooled in mmt and it will work you know i don't know yeah i'm an undercover mmt or no no i'm not really but but you know wow, you just start selling to- <laughs> yourself out <laughs> no 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 but you do start to think about these yeah, things yeah, especially in yeah. this environment liz you're the best thank you for check out me. check out her story it is among the most read on the bloomberg liz capo mccormick bond and fx reporter at bloomberg news in our bloomberg interactive broker studio check her out at mccormick liz on Twitter, I think I tweeted out her story earlier. Well, just enough, maybe not enough for a lot of cities, Carol. Yeah. Uh, really interesting story. It's in this upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week. I'm sorry, it's in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week on newsstands now, also available at Bloomberg.com and on the terminal. 
It's our Business Week technology conversation mm-hmm. for the day. Uh, Romy Varghese with us from Bloomberg 960 Studio out in San Francisco. Got the story. America's cities are running barely on software from the 80s. Wow. 80s. Tell us uh, hmm. what's going on, Romy. Well, cities across the country, you might not think of this, but behind the scenes, they are running programs from the 80s. I've even run across one from the 70s. And it's really surprising. And um, for instance, I'm here in San Francisco. Even San Francisco, which you might know of uh, being the hub for disruptive companies like Twitter and Uber, even San Francisco has a system from the 80s. It's running on a program that the language isn't even being taught anymore. And that really shows how, how problematic it is for cities across the country that even San Francisco is relying on such old technology. So, Romy, is it just a case of money and the money not being there for the upgrades or what? What's happening is it's not only just the money, but things are moving so quickly. And governments are not really known for moving quickly. You know, they have a lot of processes. They have to make sure that everything's done fairly. And it does conflict with other priorities. I mean, if you're a mayor and you have a limited amount of money, do you want to, um, I don't know, uh, have more swing sets in your park? Or do you want to spend money on something your voters don't even see that's behind the scenes? And that's really problematic for cities, especially because of the way technology is. Before, they used to um, be able to borrow money for capital projects, which would include things like big mainframes, you know, big, solid things. But right now, technology is moving toward the cloud, Mm -hmm. services, software licenses. So you can't borrow money and pay that off you know, over time, you have to spend it out of your operating funds. And that, you know, conflicts with other priorities like parks and cops. Yeah, I thought that was such an interesting twist that, I, candidly, I did not expect at all, which was that this is the, almost the nomenclature here that is uh, is really important. And, you know, you have a really helpful list under the headline of, uh, or the subheadline of chicken wire and duct tape, which I love, <laughs> um, that talks about, you know, some of these things. And some of them are really big ticket items, you know, $23 million for Broome County, New York, for radio systems. But some of them, uh, you know, Lawton, Oklahoma needs $400,000 because their court system's relying on typewriters? Wow. I mean, and listen, $400,000 is nothing to sneeze at, but that seems like they could pull that together, right? Well, that's what's so problematic for a lot of cities across the country because that might seem that might not seem like a lot of money, but it is if you have a limited tax base. Yes. It is if, you know, you have other needs like um, needing to have more cops. I mean, that this is not the top of the list for voters. They're not thinking, well, yeah, the court system, it really needs a new process. Yeah. I mean, things are, think they're getting by. That's the problem. Um, unless a crisis happens, which it does happen, but these processes, they continue to work and you have staff who have become so experienced that they know all these workarounds for these old systems. Then right. what happens when they retire? Right. Well, and and you rightly point out that, you know, that notion of a crisis and and you bring up in your story something that happened uh, in Atlanta not too long ago where, I mean, it really crippled Mm -hmm. uh, the city in in, in a way that I I believe affected the airport. I mean, it was a really massive outage. And until something like that happens, as you say, there may not be the the political will or the public will, for that matter, uh, to really spend the money. 
Right. I mean, they they knew they had to upgrade their systems, but, you know, they didn't really need to do that just yet. Well, and I do also wonder about the folks that make the software, right? You know, uh, government market, maybe (laughs) they don't see it as lucrative, right, as selling to corporate America or, or the global corporate environment. And so you don't necessarily have companies out there creating the programming that's needed. I wonder if that's part of it as well. Yes, that, that, that is definitely part of it because you can't just buy this in the app store or off the shelf. You know, businesses are, you know, there, there are exceptions. Salesforce, for instance, which is based here in San Francisco, they do have um, a group that's targeting public sector. And they say that um, it is a growing area for them. But it's difficult because you have to you have to customize your product for right. different governments. I mean, in San Francisco, in California, we have... You know, a very mm-hmm. interesting way of doing property taxes. You have to deal with that. Yeah, I, I love it. The, the specificity that's in this story is so much fun to kind of go over. Um, Romy, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Great read. Romy Varghese, a reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. I just think it's ironic, right, San Francisco? This I know. The Tech Hub. I loved where she started. That was huh. great. Uh, really good conversation. Uh, a must read available on Bloomberg.com and in the magazine. Just Moody Blues. It's Moody Blues. There you go. Good pickup. My older sister took me to a Moody Blues concert way back when. I feel like Dave Wilson's here <laughs> in the studio with it. Uh, so the wheels that we're talking about belong to Lyft. Uh, it is the talk of the town, certainly the talk of Wall Street, the talk of investment bankers. We want to figure out what it all means, though, and where we go from here and what we're to take away from it. So we've got really... Sort of a power couple yeah. uh, joining us, uh, coast to coast. Eric Gordon, professor from the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. He is here with us in our Interactive Brokers studio. And Brad Stone, uh, who has written all about all of these companies, uh, including a book uh, that includes Lyft, senior executive editor of Global Tech. Uh, he is in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Welcome to you both. So, Brad, I want to start with you because... Remind us why we care so much about Lyft. This is a fascinating company to many and and has long sort of existed a little bit in the shadow of Uber. Right. Uh, Thanks, Jason. Well, um, you know, it it is we we care in in part because of what it augurs. Right. Lyft is the first of so many of these companies, including Uber, that will be going public later in the year. Um, But it's also a pioneer. You know, it was really the first of these ride sharing companies to introduce the idea of kind of what we call unlicensed ride sharing or regular folks in most cities, uh, you know, behind the drive driver wheel, uh, driving wheel without uh, a taxi license. And it really inspired Uber, which had started before Lyft to introduce Uber X, which subsequently went out and captured the world. And so, look, it's it's a very characteristic Silicon Valley story. It's losing a lot of money, $991 million last year. So it's going to be a test of the market's appetite for these kinds of companies. Yeah, I love this story. And we're going to get into a little bit more about the, the similarities and differences between Lyft and Uber. And as they go, as they go to become public companies, how they get uh, a lot more similar. Eric, come on in the conversation, though. What will the Lyft and Uber IPO tell us kind of about the IPO market? What will it tell us about the ride-hailing business? So I think about the market in general, the IPO market in general. It'll tell us what the appetite is for these companies that Brad described of. It's all growth, growth, growth. But the more they grow, the more money they lose. So will the IPO market, how, how, much, how many more of these companies 
Can we stand? Um, what happens when another one busts out the way Blue Apron busts out? Yeah. Uh, so I, I think... Uh, but are Uber and Lyft, would you uh, say that they're similar, akin to uh, a Blue Apron? You know, they're more, like, they're more like Blue Apron than a tech company. So I, I keep hearing that this is a tech, this is a tech play. Uh, it's, they use technology. I use technology at my university. My university is not a tech company. This is a company that basically gets people to drive cars and gets people to ride in them. And it uses technology the way all others do. So if it goes out getting a tech valuation, uh, that will actually be pretty interesting. And so... Brad, tell us a little bit more uh, about Lyft's story, because I feel like they're going to have to tell it at a time when people are sort of increasingly skeptical, with, despite, um, despite Eric's good point. They are viewed as a tech company by, by many, you know, sort of everyday investors and, and tech companies. The bloom is off the rose a little bit, at least in, in the public's mind, certainly in regulators and, and lawmakers' mind. So how does Lyft tell its story in a way that's still appealing? I think they want to talk about their values. And I write in my, in my newsletter uh, today about Silicon Valley being the fusion of two separate ideological strands, the, the idealism <laughs> and, the, and the wealth concentrating, you know, libertarianism or right. capitalism. And Lyft has always tried to portray itself as the former, right? The good guys, the, be- the better boyfriend, as John Zimmer, the co-founder, once said <laughs> in relation to Uber. Um, well, even that ad campaign, right, you know, that right. really went right to the heart of all the controversy around Uber at the time, right? That's right. And, but I think, you know, Eric makes the right point, which is, you know, so, uh, the Wall Street's likely to see through this story. They're going to look at the numbers, you know, a, a, nearly a billion dollars in losses for 2018. Unlike Uber, you know, which is into, you know, deeper into autonomous research, into food delivery, even into scooters and, and e-bikes, you know, Lyft has a little bit of an effort there and in autonomous research, but it's really, you know, it's, it's also geographically concentrated on ride sharing in North America. So, I think Wall Street's going to look at the numbers and also want to know what the next act is. I do wonder, too, Brad, you've written about Amazon. I do wonder if there's a company that has certainly evolved big time and continues to get into new and, you know, more and more new businesses. And I do wonder what Lyft might ultimately be. You've got Uber, right, doing Uber Eats and some other things. And I do wonder down the road what Lyft needs to do to survive. Right. Can they reinvent themselves? And, you know, a point I make in the newsletter is that Lyft started out as a much different business. It was called Zimride. It was designed to facilitate rides between cities, kind of between, you know, college campuses and students' homes. Uh, And they they petered along for six years before, you know, completely reinventing themselves as Lyft. So we know they can do that. And I think uh, it's something that investors will want to see. You know, what is their next big business? And so, Eric, what should investors be most worried about when it comes to any of these companies, especially uh, Lyft and Uber? Yeah, I think they need to look at the cost structure. Can they grow themselves into profitability or can they grow themselves into bigger deficits? For example, if to grow, you have to keep giving bigger and bigger incentives to drivers to drive the cars, to riders to ride the cars, how, how are you going to grow into profitability? It, it could be a downward spiral. Um, there are also still a lot of regulatory and tax things hanging over their head. Um, so um, Bloomberg Law ran a thing earlier today. I saw in the terminal that Los Angeles County is looking at taxing the ride-sharing services and regulating them. So there's a lot of regulatory uncertainty. There's also the, yeah, what do they do next to expand? That's sort of a two-edged sword because the founders are going to get this super voting stock. They're going to control everything. 
are they going to use that to be a Jeff Bezos, who for years had free hands to spend mm-hmm. money on things people thought were crazy? Those crazy things have become their most profitable things. Or will they have a free hand to invest in bikes and scooters and who knows what? And it fails. So it's a two, it's a, it's a, they got to do it, but it's also a risk factor for investors. That's a great point, Brad. That ownership structure, we see it increasingly, you know, in these newer, younger companies that go public. How will that kind of help or hurt the company going forward? Well, I think John Zimmer and Logan Green, they've, they've given themselves uh, these super shares, which I think count for 20 or uh, uh, 20 times the votes as ordinary shares. Um, you know, to the, to the extent that the investors are still uh, willing to tolerate that, it seems like they are, it, it can be a great asset to the Lyft management team because it gives them the room and the runway to go make unprofitable bets, uh, you know, n- new technologies or services that won't uh, come to maturity for many years. But, um, you know, they, n- neither of those founders have proven themselves as uh, the kind of innovator that Jeff Bezos is, uh, they probably won't have the leeway from their investors to go lose a lot of money over a long period of time. So you'll, they'll, it'll see. I mean, it, it, the, the shares definitely will help, but uh, right. they won't give Lyft the cover that, it, that it'll need. Brad Stone, Senior Executive Editor of Global Tech. He's also the author of a couple books, notably here, The Upstarts, How Uber, Airbnb, and the Killer Companies of the New Silicon Valley Are Changing the World. And Eric Gordon... Nice to have him in town. Such a treat to have you here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, normally out at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, one of the stories we've been certainly watching, you just heard it mentioned by Bailey, and that has to do with OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma, apparently preparing for a possible bankruptcy filing as it faces hundreds of lawsuits over its role in the U.S. opioid epidemic. Reuters and Wall Street Journal both reporting uh, the possibility of this bankruptcy filing. Let's get into this because we actually did at the uh, magazine, at Bloomberg Business Week magazine, a deep dive into the lawyer who's really been leading the charge against uh, the opioid manufacturers. In the house, Jill Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And on the phone out there on the West Coast, Esme Dupre, uh, who is a reporter here at uh, the magazine as well. So this is a big development, uh, you know, potentially, uh, Joel, in terms of kind of what happens now to Purdue, which has really been one of the big companies involved in terms of OxyContin manufacturing. Yeah, that's right. And and to be clear, like the word remains, explores bankruptcies. So nothing nothing happening quite yet. Not but yet. The, the reason that I kind of wanted to put a spotlight on this one was because of this amazing article that Esme did for the magazine a year and a half ago. It was a cover story mm-hmm. uh, about, a, uh, about a guy named Mike Moore, and the cover line was Opio- Opioid Avenger. Uh, the deck, the the lawyer who beat Big Pharma is going after Big Big Tobacco is going after Big Pharma, yeah. and I think that it really sums it up because um, you know it's one of the things we ta- we think about a lot in the magazine is how do you put a stamp on something, and, and then by you know something like this, like you put a spotlight on a guy who basically no one's known of. You know, he was the uh, the Attorney General in Mississippi from 1988 to 2004, but. You know, he's he's sort of the character behind the curtain. And so Esme sort of pulled that back, and I felt like it was a good moment to actually, like, revisit that story for a moment and kind of talk to her about what to make of what's happening. Yeah, Esme, come on in on it, because we do wonder, you know, where we are in this process. And I was curious, you know, what does this mean for the litigation? Mike Moore has been going after various states and attorney generals and really kind of corralling a bunch of different lawyers to go after this industry. Um, what are you hearing? What's the update? 
Yeah, so Mike Moore is the was the attorney general, as Joel said, from 1988 to 2004 Mississippi, and he used this an untested and widely derided legal strategy at the time to really t- uh, take down big tobacco. He marshaled AGs from around the country, along with private plaintiffs' lawyers, um, and they went on to negotiate the largest corporate settlement legal sorry cor- largest corporate legal settlement in U.S. history. That was a 50 state, 246 billion dollar agreement that funds smoking cessation and prevention programs to this day. So right now he's been trying, or you know, for the past couple of years, he's been trying to essentially create the same, a similar, use a similar, use a similar strategy to tackle the opioid epidemic. So he's been traversing the country. He's works, he's works with AGs across the country. Um, has his names on, a, has his name on a number of lawsuits, but also is advising a number of, of other officials who have their names on the lawsuits um, to really go after opioid companies in the same way. And the idea is to essentially corner them into, you know, having filing so many individual expensive lawsuits that you corner these companies into negotiating a collective settlement instead of fighting each one separately. So the same the idea is the same here. If they can exert enough pressure, collect enough evidence and drive potential damages so high, it will be cheaper for opioid manufacturers to back down and settle as opposed to fight each individual court case. And how important would it be for them to essentially turn uh, the OxyContin maker, Purdue, on this? So actually, bankruptcy is not necessarily the goal. And right. um, I mean, it never has been the goal, because if you put if you put a company into bankruptcy, I mean, the idea is to get a Because really they're trying to get out of it. I mean, th- this would be a strategy for Purdue to essentially get out of a lot of this, right? Perhaps, yeah. I mean, so for the goal for Moore and his allies are really to, to create a big national fund that would go to to know to go to addiction treatment and you know to 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 replace the cost that states and cities and counties across the country have spent on things like police and you know ambulance and, and all the you know all the rest all those public costs for healthcare, criminal justice and treatment so i mean actually bankruptcy has never been the goal um of or it wasn't at the time of of these lawsuits so it would be interesting to yeah to hear from mike for himself on on what he thinks of this bankruptcy, but um, that was not initially the goal because you want they they want the you want the money you want these companies still to have right. money right that they can then reimburse the whether it's the cities the states the individuals exactly and so what's what's Moore's history with Purdue Pharma specifically so Purdue I mean Purdue is named in a number of these lawsuits so um, Purdue is one of many there's Endo there's Johnson Johnson's Janssen Pharmaceuticals. So these suits began in 2014, but they've really ramped up in the past couple of years. And they essentially allege that the companies have triggered the opioid epidemic by minimizing the addiction and overdose risks of, of their painkillers. Um, we know them by their brand names, Oxycontin, Percocet, Duragesic. Uh, and here's what they argue. They, they, these lawsuits argue opioids don't just cause problems when they're misused. They do so when used as directed to. Esme Dupre, thank you so much. It is a story I know Joel Weber tweeted out. We will tweet it out as well. Worth revisiting uh, as this news uh, starts to break. Joel, while we have you here, what else uh, are we looking forward to in the magazine this week? Oh, I can't give you that. It's like a sneak peek of what's to come, right? <laughs> Gotta wait, uh, this everybody. Why, this I don't is know. why we there's, bring you in. some on, interesting man. things. Like, um, I don't know if you watch HBO at all. That seems sort of interesting. Yeah, a lot going uh, on over there. there there's some guy leaving there, on I the think. other side of the world that we're kind of interested in. Like, yeah, there's some stuff going on. 
All just, right. Just a few things brewing, just right? Just teasing. Just teasing a little but bit. But I will say, go read this cover story because this guy is phenomenal. And when you think about what he did with the tobacco, tobacco industry, it'll be interesting to see what he ultimately might do with the opioid industry because there's a, still a lot of other players out there. And it's a very personal quest for him as well. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week here on Bloomberg Radio. Jason Kelly, Carol Masser. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Alan Zafrin back with us, Senior Managing Director and Wealth Manager at First Republic Private Wealth Management. We're seeing about $126 billion. Joining us from lovely Palo Alto, California. Alan, I think it's safe to say that Carol and I would much rather be in Palo Alto today. Yes. It is quite chilly here uh, on the East Coast. I uh, hope it's treating you well out there. What are you seeing in uh, the trade? Uh, what I'm seeing in the trade is sunny skies here on the West Coast. There's <laughs> nothing but uh, some blue skies after we get through a little, eh, it might be a little choppiness here. We're up 18% on the S&P since Christmas time. And at some point, you can't go up forever. The NASDAQ's up 10 weeks in a row. I mean, we don't just go straight up. We have to uh, consolidate here. And in fact, what you're watching today, weakness despite reasonably positive news from China and the U.S. tells you that that kind of that stuff's kind of factored in the market now. We're going to need to ultimately see some other positive developments or earnings growth on the back half of this year to sustain this rally. I suspect we will, but after a, you know a quick run up, you know you got to consolidate a little bit probably before you uh, move higher. So if Corporate profits start to grow. If the economy starts to grow better, then maybe some of the forecasts that's out there, and then that leads to higher corporate earnings. Uh, that would seem to be upbeat and some optimism, maybe, in terms of the outlook. But I also do wonder what it might mean then for Fed policy if they start to say, ah, we can start raising rates. Things are, are kind of looking good. How will investors read that, Alan? Well, investors eventually won't like that. But uh, I can tell you right now, investors think the Fed is on hold at best, maybe they've got one Fed hike to go, and that's probably only after the earnings start showing up in the economic data, which is at the very back half of this year. I think from a sequencing and timing perspective, you're most likely to see global growth, if anything, begin to accelerate back up because of strength stemming actually from China, all the fiscal stimulus it did, leading to greater growth, which will be seen also in Europe which eventually will translate into an ability for rates to rise back up here in the U.S. Rates in the U.S. are challenged to rise because if my 10-year yield in Germany is 0.16, I mean, a treasury at 2.7 looks like a bargain. Right. Um, and so it's, I think from a sequencing standpoint, we are in the Goldilocks of the, of the, <laughs> the, the situation right now. Where we are is a situation where you have growth fast enough to generate earnings, but not fast enough globally to drive yields meaningfully higher. And in that environment, equities tend to go up. So we hear a lot about diversification, and you were nice enough to send some of your thoughts uh, ahead of time that Carol and I could take a look at. Uh, what does diversification look like in, in your estimation? 
Diversification is something that, frankly, I think most investors don't actually employ. In my mind, diversification is insurance. Diversification is buying a negative correlating asset. Diversification is willingness to buy an intermediate or long-term treasury bond so that when my stocks go up, my bond prices may not go down, may not go up. In fact, they probably go down a bit, but it protects me from a fourth quarter in 2018 when the, when the stock market falls 20%, my bonds hold value and actually increase a bit. That's what diversification means to me. What I think most people do is they fool themselves. They say, oh, stocks and bonds don't uh, are diversified, so I'll go buy a high-yield bond along with stocks. That doesn't <laughs> Not work. Not the same right. thing, right? No, far from it. So I think you really have to understand diversification, and it comes at a conscious cost, and you have to decide whether or not you're willing to forego some return to mitigate the crazy swings like we saw in 2018. It's amazing how quickly investors forget. I mean, it was miserable in December. Yeah. Picking up the phone, talking to clients, trying to explain myself. And, uh, you know, it's still saying you're never as smart as you think in a bull market and probably not as dumb as you think in a bear market. But, boy, it feels lousy in the moment when things are going down. So we kind of go back to the old formula, right? You know, diversification. We've talked about this forever, right? When you're investing, you need to think about it, but real diversification. So, you know, so that depending on whatever the market outlook is and kind of kind of the old boring way in terms of equities and, you know, securities, treasuries, that kind of thing. I believe so. I believe that traditional high quality bond, which I define as treasuries, investment grade municipal bonds, I think they really do still have a negative correlation to stocks. The one caveat, is if you got into what we'd call a stagflation environment, where you'd have a stagnant economy and inflation and mm-hmm. rising rates, that would be very problematic. Um, that, But for the most part, I think the old model still holds. And uh, it's hard for people to get grounded at a 2.7% 10-year yield wanting to buy long-term bonds. But that, in fact, is what will hold value in right. most in circumstances of the economy. And you would have loved to have had that back in December when everything right. <laughs> was selling yeah. off on the equity Absolutely. side of things. I have to say, I haven't heard the term stagflation in uh, quite some time. Maybe, that, maybe that's coming back. Uh, Tells you how old I am. There you go. Um, so, Alan, one question I wanted to make sure we asked you was this trade war, because I feel like – we, you know, we keep getting these signs like, oh, maybe everything's going to be okay between the U.S. and China investors because sort of exhale. But, you know, Joe Weisenthal and, and others have said to us, so is there a deal? Like, is there going to be a deal? Is the deal priced into the market? I think that's a point Carol made earlier in the show. When you talk to clients, are they worried about that? And, and what do you tell them? Uh, I would. T- I don't think. I don't think clients are very worried about it, uh, and I think it's now largely priced into the okay. market. However, I want to make two points. Number one, the cost of this deal in the middle of it, the trade, is probably as damaging to America as it is to China. I don't know mm-hmm. if you saw. There was a study published on Saturday. Economists from Princeton and Columbia and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. They found that the tariffs imposed by uh, the administration were hurting U.S. companies yes. and consumers as much or more than China. Yep. So that gets you to point two. Of course, our side and the Chinese want to solve this. It is actually mutually destructive. It's not beneficial to anybody. And frankly, if our administration wants to get reelected and if China wants its economy to reaccelerate, they have to come to some face-saving solution. Unfortunately, it isn't going to cover the big issue. China is not going to allow the U.S. to prevent them from trying to find their way to technological independence. 
So we're going to get, in my opinion, a modest sort of face-saving, superficial set of policies that will kind of work. I don't really know if we're really going to get policies with teeth um, that are really going to hold China accountable in the long run. That's a discussion, yeah. I think, for yeah. a different day. And as we've heard, we've had what Kyle Bass that we talked with, right, that saying that President Trump has a unique opportunity right now to really push on the Chinese because they're hurting so much in terms of pushing, you know, forward on IP and other issues. Um, Alan, thank you so much. Much appreciated. Alan Zafrin, he's Senior Managing Director, Wealth Manager, First Republic Private Wealth Management. Uh, as Jason mentioned earlier, over $126 billion in assets under management. Alan joining us uh, from Palo Alto, California, where... I'm guessing no snow, and it's no. Blue toasty. Skies. Blue skies, he said. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.